Good morning again, church. Good morning. It is good to be with you, and I had another good morning uh, today. I got a little drawing by my favorite first grader on my chalkboard in my office, so you may want to check that out before you leave. Just walk in my office, which is on your right as you go out. You know, there's just certain things you, you really kind of enjoy in life and, and simple things and routine things. And, and so, uh, so I'm going to be going to be looking at that little drawing this week and, and thankful for that. All right, here we go. What time is it? Uh, what time is it? It says uh, one answer to that question, 11.04 uh, is what time it is. Uh, another answer to the question over here, I see some 49ers. It's football time, right? Um, it's playoff time for football fans. For NFL, it doesn't get any better. The, su- the Super Bowl is coming. Go Cowboys. Go Cowboys. Wow. All right. We're going to have a congregational meeting after the meeting today. No. Uh, it's football time. Um, other answers to that question. Uh, some might say it's, it's, uh, it's postmodern time or it's post-Christian time. We are in a post-Christian or post-modern era in this country, and particularly in our state and in the West, where objective truths are met with great skepticism and individual fulfillment and just individual, just I, me, subjectivism is, is, is what it's all about. So that might be an answer to the question, what time is it? It's, it's post-Christian time. It's, it's, it's post-modern time. Many answers might be given to that question, what, what time it is, in addition to the most basic one of the time. But I want to suggest that Romans 13 uh, answers that question, what time it is. And it gives us a very different perspective about what time it is. And it may seem almost uh, offensive or crazy to a skeptic to, that an ancient document, that an ancient book could help us in 2022 in the foothills know what time it is, but I want to submit that that is actually the case, and we need to be informed increasingly by the scriptures when we might ask the question in a very general way, uh, what time is it? So I want us to take a look at what God has to say to us today through Romans 13, and in part, what he's going to be saying to us is what time it is. And I'm praying that this is going to be impressed on you today because this isn't generally impressed on us, I think. In general, the Word of God is not impressed upon us to the degree that it should be and that it must be. And so this is part of of why we gather, is to be together and have the Word of God impressed upon us. So let's uh, hopefully you have your Bibles open to Romans chapter 13. And we're going to get to this question in just a a couple moments here, a couple minutes. Uh, What time is it? But let's begin with these first three words of Romans 13 and verse 11. In my translation, it says, and do this. Romans 13, 11 begins, and do this. In the Greek text, it's just two words. It's just, and this. And the implied verb there is do. And so it's, it's very strong, just two words, and do this, and do this. So if you've been here for some time, you know that the careful reader of God's word should now ask, well, what is the, this that we're supposed to do? 
and do this. So just very briefly, the beginning of this unit, we preach a unit of Scripture each week. This week it's 11 to 14. The beginning of this unit is do this, and so we look right up to what's happened previously. Many of you were here last week. The summary of those verses that precede this, verses 8 through 10, the summary of that is for us to love one another. Remember, there's just one single debt remaining that will be with us forever as Christians until we are with the Lord, and actually it'll continue after that to continue loving one another, to love our neighbor. So when it says do this, it is certainly referring to that, but it is actually referring to this whole unit going all the way back to 2.12.1. So if there's a larger unit of scripture here, it would be chapter 12.1 through the end of 14. So when he says do this, he's referring to immediately what was before, but it's going all the way back to chapter 12 in verse 1. Let me just read a little bit of it to you. 12.1, you know this passage. Therefore I urge you, In view of God's mercy. Oh, I love that phrase. Not in view of his wrath, not in view of his anger, but I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies. Church, Christ followers, offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So, longer answer than I intended maybe, what does it mean to do this? It means to love our neighbors. It means to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. What renews our minds? It is the truth of God's word and the Holy Spirit applying the word to our minds instead of all this other data and stuff coming our way. This is mostly what we need to impress our minds with and renew our minds so that we can love our neighbors and love God. So all of that, first three words, and do this, or simply, and this, and this. So now we get to this aspect of this component of this unit of Scripture where this question is coming, what time is it? So we've looked at the first three words in my translation. Let's continue on now in verse 11. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So here's, the, here's where I got kind of the theme, if you will, the, the, the language of this sermon, the title of the sermon, what time is it from this aspect of verse 11. So we're supposed to do this But how are we supposed to do this? We're supposed to do it with an understanding of what time it is. And the time is that our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. That is what time it is. That was true in the first century when Paul wrote this. And that is true now some 80 generations later. That our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Well, what is he referring to here when he says our salvation? Salvation refers to the ultimate completion of God's work in our lives. A work that will not be finished until Christ returns and transforms our bodies so that we can enjoy the eternal kingdom of God forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. 
So what time is it according to Romans 13 verses 11 through 13? What time it is, is it is the time that we are nearer the return of Christ and nearer our final salvation and nearer the new heavens and the new earth than we were prior. And so this is what time it is. This is the motivating factor. This is the urgency why you are to do this. Now this, I'm saying, in my own life and in many of our lives, just doesn't seem to be what is impressed upon us. That is why we are preaching the Scriptures. What am I getting at here? I, I don't know if you're like me, but I, I, I kind of did the, the calculations. You know, a generation is the average span of time between the birth of parents and that of their offspring, and there's maybe 80, 90, depending on you know, how you, uh, what numeric value you give to a generation, 80 or 90 generations. So what has happened since this was written? What has happened? I think what has happened is that we have become complacent about the end coming, about that our salvation is nearer. We have become complacent about this. This hasn't impacted us. When we, when we think about what time it is, I'm speaking generally, I hope this isn't true about you, but I'm just saying for many of us, myself included, this isn't what is on our minds and hearts. But this is what is being put on our minds and hearts through Romans 13. How are we to love our neighbors? How are we to have our minds renewed? How are we not to go with the flow of our postmodern, post-Christian, post-everything, subjective culture? Part of it is that we know what time it is. And we are nearer the end. We are near our salvation. So the critic may be thinking there's been 80 or 90 generations, really. Is, is, is it really near? It's nearer. Look at the text with me. Paul is not teaching here that Christ is going to come in his generation. He was not teaching that Christ was going to come in the next few weeks or the next few months He's not teaching that now. He didn't teach that in the first century. The Word of God is living, inspired by the Spirit. What this is saying is that salvation is nearer. And this is the motivation for us to do this, to do these things. So what time is it? It's time to wake up, church, according to Romans 13. It is time because we are near nearer, nearer, is that a word? Yeah, that's a word. Nearer the end, where we're headed. We know this world's broken. Whether we want to talk about politics, whether we want to talk about 49ers and cowboys, whether we want to talk about COVID, whether we want to talk about cancer, whether we want to talk about all uh, Ukraine and Russia, there, there's brokenness all over the place. But this world is not going to stay in this broken condition. God is moving it toward an end, toward a new heavens and new earth. That is our home. That is where we're headed. And we are supposed to live in light of the reality that we are nearer to that. Now, God has always existed. There's never a beginning for him. There was never an end for him. We use kind of strange language, eternity past, eternity future. He has always been. But at some point in eternity past, he created the universe. He did that to glorify himself. 
and the pinnacle of that created universe, those who were made in his image are you and me, human beings. And look at all, we have done amazing and creative things human beings have. Art and civilizations and, and all sorts of unbelievable things. But we have done it in a broken way because going back to the garden, there was this fall. And human beings and the planet have been cursed since then. And we live in this broken condition. And, and for centuries and centuries, we are awaiting a Messiah. Creation, fall, we are awaiting this redemption and this Savior, this Messiah, he finally came some 2,000 years ago, but to the surprise of everyone that was waiting for him, he didn't come and usher in the new heavens and new earth. He came to satisfy our sins and to show his love by being a servant on a cross. And now we wait for his coming again, for restoration or for consummation or whatever you want to call it, the new heavens and the new earth. And what Romans 13 11 through 14 is impressing upon us is that we are nearer this than we were. And so this is our motivation to do these things. This is what time it is according to Romans 13. Even though many, many generations have lived and died, this remains true. It was true for every generation prior and it is true now. I want to go back very briefly to Romans chapter 8. Look at it with me, verse 19. It says, The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God, for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. This is talking about at the end, at the consummation or the redemption of all things, the new heavens and new earth. The creation is personified here and it's waiting for that, for that, that bell to go off. And for things to be as God intends them to be forever and ever. The creation is waiting for this in eager expectation. Should we be waiting for this with eager expectation? Say yes. Say yes. 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 That's what this text is saying. That's what time it is. The creation is waiting for it. And in eager expectation for it are the people of God. For the creation was subjected to frustration. It was cursed, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So the creation is longing, and what time it is, it's time for us to be longing and to live in light of the reality that we are nearer to Christ's return. Wayne Grudem writes this. He says, When we consider the fact that this present creation is a temporary one and that our life in the new creation will last for eternity, we have a strong motivation for godly living and for living in such a way as to store up treasures in heaven. So what is really important, that we glorify God, that we love our neighbors, that we love our co-workers, what is the most important for the Christian teacher or the Christian physician isn't their teaching or their practicing of medicine, but those transcendent things of loving those within their spheres of influence for the glory of God, knowing that Christ is coming back soon. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. This is the story of the Bible. This is the gospel story, if you will. 
And so, of course, one of the questions that comes up to our minds, I've already alluded to it, is there have been 80 generations or so. You know, where are we if we think of this as a timeline? Uh, where are we? We know we are before the time of restoration. We know that Christ hasn't returned yet. But, but are we in the beginning of that, that beige section or are we uh, toward the very end? Uh, he, here's, here's the answer. Ready for the answer? No one knows about that day or hour. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, that is Jesus, this is Jesus speaking, but only the Father. I don't know. And if you go to some place where someone knows, and that's what they're teaching, you probably need to go to a different place. Because Jesus doesn't know. Jesus is fully God. How does Jesus not know? Well, this is kind of like asking, how does Jesus pray to the Father? Jesus is also fully human. And he submits and subordinates himself voluntarily out of love and in relationship to the Father. So the Son doesn't even know, let alone Mike. I don't know. Maybe we're right near that blue. Maybe the, the, the trump is going to sound today or tomorrow. Maybe it's in a hundred years, a thousand years. I don't know. Jesus doesn't know. But what we know is that we are nearer to our salvation now than when we first believed. And so this is what time it is. It's time to wake up. The restoration bell will soon ring. And when that soonness is, I don't know. And you don't know, but we are nearer to it. So this is what time it is. So in light of this reality, in, in light of the reality that we are nearer to the second coming, nearer to the new heavens and the new earth, so, so, so what do we do? And there's kind of two things described in the remainder of this unit of Scripture. Let's come back to the text here and pick it up in the middle of verse 12. Uh, it says uh, in the middle of verse 12, So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires the flesh. So Paul now gives us a couple, you know, to, to, to kind of summarize what, what, what I just read, there, there's kind of two basic things being said here. Um, it, it, it's time to, to put on Christ, and it's time to not gratify the desires of the flesh. In light of the time that it is, and the time that it is is near our salvation. So these are the two things, putting on Christ, putting off the desires of the flesh. Look at this language. Let's, let's hit the, the, the happier one first, uh, putting on Christ. Um, look, look near the end of, of uh, our unit of Scripture today. Look at verse 14. Uh, my translation says, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Your translation might say, walk with, do life intimately with, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. But this imagery, this is a good translation, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Put him on. Put him on. The person of Jesus, he is with you in an intimate way. When we are yielded to the Spirit, we bounce back and forth between the flesh and the Spirit and yielding. And so this passage is saying, put him on. He is with you, Christ follower. Clothe yourself with Christ. It's a poetic way to describe who you are as a Christ follower. You're not putting on a concept. You're not putting on a religion. You're putting on a person, the Lord of glory. The Apostle Paul describes it in Galatians 2. He says, I've been crucified. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. We need to put him on to intimately walk with Jesus in light of what time it is. Are you and I putting Christ on? Are we wearing those clothes? Is, it, is Christ what I am all about? There's a parallel passage to this passage that speaks about putting on Christ or, or uh, as, it, as it is here in the NIV, verse 14, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a parallel passage in Galatians 3. Let's look at it together. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ. That is, all of you who have come to faith in Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And then there's this famous line. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither, there's no fleas either, but neither slave nor free. Nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Let's talk about this sentence, this last sentence, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, in light of this idea of putting on Christ, of having clothed ourselves with Christ. So what, 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 is, what is being said here? Well, let, let's start with what it's not being said. So in first century, as the church gathered in Galatia, there were... Jews and non-Jews. And that was a big deal. The church was overwhelmingly Jewish. Today it is overwhelmingly Gentile. But in the first century it was overwhelmingly Jewish. So whether you were a Jew or not was a big deal as you walked into the gathering on Sunday morning or Sunday night or whenever it was that they gathered Sunday afternoon on the day that the Lord rose, we're told, is when they gathered. It was a big deal. But So what is it saying when it says you are not, uh, there is neither Jew or Gentile, it's not saying that you ceased to be Jewish or you ceased to be non-Jewish. That's not what it's saying. Neither is there slave nor free. So in, in the first century, there wasn't this atrocious, racist, white supremacist slavery in the first century. There was a slavery that was tied to your economic condition. They didn't really have bankruptcy like you run up your credit card and you go and you like, you know, get a charge off and everything's okay and you like start over. If you did the equivalent of running up your credit card, you likely became a slave in the first century and you were indebted to whoever you owed, probably just for a certain period of time until your labor compensated for your debt. So what this is not saying is that as the church gathered in Galatia, that 
that those who were slaves stopped being slaves and those who were free stopped being free. That, that's not what it's saying. And it's obviously not saying that they stopped being male and stopped being female. What is this saying? It is saying that these things that have a tendency to define who we are, ethnicity, Jew or Gentile, economic status, slave or free, gender, male or female, these are the, not the things that primarily identify who we are as Christ followers at the core of our being. What identifies me and you and Christ followers is, and other Christ followers is Christ himself. We put him on. So there is a diminishing of our ethnicity. Not an eradication of it. There is a diminishing of our economic status. That is not what defines us. There is a diminishing of, our, of how we identify as male and female, particularly when one of those genders was looked down upon, wrongly looked down upon. They are equal in Christ's in value and in worth. This is what the scriptures teach. He made us male and female. But there was this distortion of that. There was a distortion that Jews were better. There was a distortion that free people were better than those who were indebted to slavery. There was a distortion that males were better than females. That is all false. And these things don't mostly identify us. We are to put on the clothing of Jesus Christ and this is what identifies us in light of the reality of Christ coming. So in light of that passage in Galatians, and in light of this passage in Romans 13, we should be asking the Holy Spirit right now to be thinking about what it is that wants to usurp, take over your core identity in your life. What is it? probably not being Jewish or Gentile. That's probably not it. But I'm telling you, the enemy wants you to identify with something other than Christ, and this is, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. And man, there are all kinds of places we could go here as to, to what we're about and what our identities are. Now, I don't know if I've mentioned it to you before, but I like mountain biking. Have I mentioned that to you? So there might be a tendency, I, I would hate this, ten, I do hate this tendency, but if all I did was mountain bike, to have a tendency of that being my identity, what a terrible identity to be a, a good mountain biker or a mountain biker who just hits all the right jumps and trails right or whatever, what, what a low, what, 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 a, what a just pitiful identity if that was going to be what I'm about. And yet I've met people who have communicated to me and wear t-shirts that kind of say that, whether it's about mountain biking or about skiing or about football or whatever, that life is that. that, that that's a pitiful identity. So we need to be gracious with people who think that way. We must not be that, that kind of person. We need to put on the clothes of Christ as our identity because of what time it is. If you listen, whatever pop music you listen to, if it's not Christian music, there's probably lyrics about identity 
and salvation. They don't use the word identity or the word salvation, but that's really what they're talking about. This is what life is all about. Have any country music fans here? Anybody? So I'm going to put a country song up here. Um, and some, for some people, the identity that they have or they're after is being a country girl or a country boy. That's who I am. That's what I'm all about. That, 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 that's just down here like mountain biking. It's, it's like saying I, I'm a city boy or a city girl. But, but we have lots of songs uh, uh, about this. Here, here, here's one of them. I live back in the woods, you see. My woman and the kids and the dogs and me. I got a shotgun, a rifle, and a four-wheel drive. And a country boy can survive. Country folks can survive. Those of you that know this song, it, it goes deeper. There's a battle in the song between the country boy and the city boy. The city boy's murdered. You shouldn't be a city boy. That's the central proposition of the song. This is what happens if you're a preacher. You listen to songs. What is the central proposition of this sermon? The central proposition of that song is don't be a city boy. Be a country boy. This is how we live. This is who I am. This is my identity. This is salvation. Being a country boy, that is not salvation. Salvation is putting on Christ, clothing yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ because he is coming back soon. We are nearer to our salvation than we've ever been. Whether you live in the city, whether you live in the country, whether you like to ski or mountain bike, these things are down here. We are called to put on Christ. What time is it? It's time to wake up. The restoration bell, the second coming, the new heavens and earth, it is coming. It is time to put on Christ. Put on Christ. One of my favorite memories when I think about putting on, I think about putting on a backpack. One of my favorite memories from early in our marriage is going backpacking with my mother and father-in-law and my wife's um, adult siblings. And I can remember us being at many trailheads, but one in particular in Kings Canyon, Rhodes End Trailhead. And we were just going to this beautiful backcountry. And we're all putting on our backpacks. And we are, we are ready to go out and just see this, this beautiful country. And what Romans 13, 11 through 14 is about is reminding us every day, every hour, every moment that we're conscious and thinking about it, to put on Christ because we are heading to this incredible country that is way more beautiful and will never end way more beautiful than Kings Canyon or any place I've ever been. It's time to put on Christ. That is what time it is. In our last few minutes here, I said there's kind of two things. We could divide this into two things. Um, this, in light of what time it is, what should we do? We should put on Christ and we should put off the flesh. So things not fitting for those who belong to the light, for those who belong to Christ. What does it mean to not gratify the desires of the flesh? And, and basically, we don't have time to get into all three of these things, but there's basically three categories mentioned in this short unit of Scripture. Sins of addiction in drinking and partying sexual sins, and social sins. The social sins are at the end of verse 13, not in dissension and jealousy. 
And then we have sexual immorality right above that. And then we have these addictive sins uh, right above that. So the third and final thing about what time it is, is it's time to put off the flesh and the desires of the flesh in light of what time it is. And ultimately what time it is, it's time we are nearer in time to Christ's consummation and redemption of all things than we have ever been. And so it is time to put off the flesh. So our culture is increasingly not only rejecting what the Bible teaches about sexuality and sexual ethics and gender, but we're getting to the point where what the Bible teaches is actually considered evil or unhelpful or untherapeutic or immoral, or wrong for a licensed practitioner to teach or to preach. This is where our culture is going. But we are not following our culture. We are following Christ and the Word of God. So let me just briefly here, as we get near the end of this sermon, remind you about, about what the Scriptures teach about Sexual ethics about marriage. Let's go back briefly to Genesis 2, where it is not good for human beings to be alone. And so, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Here is the beginning of of what the Scriptures teach about sexual ethics, about marriage. You know, we have had uh, a whole bunch of, of movements that have happened here in recent years in our country and in Europe and in the West. You heard of the, the Me Too movement? Have you heard of that? Well, th- there's actually something to the Me Too movement. Women have been abused. The weak have been abused by the strong. No matter what sort of Oppression it is. Christians are called to to bring about justice. And whether it's a big kid beating up a little kid on the playground, whether it's a man taking advantage of a woman, these things are evil and they're wrong. We need to listen patiently and lovingly to those who have been wounded by oppressors. We also need to be ready to show them a better way to live, God's way to live. To show those who have been wounded by oppressors or abused. We need to stand with the weak who are abused by the strong. But Scripture goes much further than the Me Too movement. So our message, if we were having a genuine conversation with a champion of the Me Too movement, we would want to enter into their suffering and pray for the person who's been abused, and love them, and listen to them. But then if they were actually willing to listen to us, we would want to say to them, you haven't really gone far enough. You know what their central proposition is, right, as a preacher? The central proposition of the Me Too movement is you must get consent. That's their message. What the Bible teaches 
is that the, the, the Bible teaches a, a, a super consent. <laughs> Do you see what the Bible teaches? This is for a husband and wife. It's not consent. It's the covenant of marriage that is needed. Now, they're probably not ready to hear that. So we need to be patient with champions of the Me Too movement. We need to listen and love them and then be ready to give them an answer for hopefully the question that they have. Yes, you need consent, but you need a Lord and you need a husband or wife until death do you part. That's where this beautiful thing happens. It's time to put off the flesh. I'm talking about our witness. This passage is actually speaking about it going on in our own lives. Temptation to immorality and all this sort of thing. We need as brothers and sisters to confess our sins to each other, to receive the forgiveness of Christ, and to fight the fight of faith. We struggle with these things as well. This is not just outside the church when it comes to abuse and so on. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, the Christian view requires sex to always be super consensual, only for people ready to give their whole lives to each other. Their whole lives. It is about a covenant of marriage. Our society used to believe in this, but they don't anymore. And so they need this message from us, even though they are probably not aware that they need this message from us. So we need to be patient with them and preach the word in season and out of season with love and with kindness and with patience. So, what time is it? It is time to wake up. The bell will be ringing soon. The trumpet will be going off soon. It is time to put on Christ. It is time to put off the flesh as we struggle with these kinds of temptations that the Roman church was struggling with, we also need to recognize that our society is now viewing these things not as temptations, but as rights. They're, 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 they're identifying sin as, as a right and as something good. And so we need to understand that as we relate to the world around us. We'll close today with the words of Matthew Henry. He says this. This is back to this imagery of of clothing yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, when we are up and dressed, we are not to sit still in, a, in an affected closeness and privacy as monks and hermits. We get dressed up and we go to a wedding. We get dressed up and we go to dinner. We get dressed up and we go to a graduation. What have we good clothes for? What are the good clothes that we are putting on? We are putting on Christ so that we can appear in all of the spheres of influence that God takes us into and show the beauty and love of our God as well as the life that he calls us to. This is what time it is. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Father in heaven, so many generations have passed since Christ's first coming that we can, some of us, just forget about it 
And Romans 13 re-impresses us upon us. Lord, others of us maybe are overly concerned and we, we, we obsess over the second coming of Christ. Lord, help us to have a balanced perspective to live life, but to know that this is not our home and that the trumpet is going to be sounding. Help us to wake up from our spiritual slumber knowing that this difficult world that we live in one day will be perfected. And we pray that it would be soon. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.